She's sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Let's solve this issue. Leader McConnell is correct to say we're not going to take up something in the Senate unless it includes border wall funding. Well, what's been so ironic is that the Democrats and the leadership mentioned last week in the meeting with the president that they want to secure the border, yet they fail to define what border security means. For us, it doesn't bother us what they want to call it. They can call it a wall. They can call it uh, uh, steel barriers. That doesn't matter to Border Patrol agents. As Border Patrol agents, we need a physical barrier out there so that we can protect our country, so that we can keep American people safe, and so that we can keep our Border Patrol agents safe as well. Well, I'm one of many Democrats who has voted for and is willing to invest in border security. Uh, I do think we need to have secure borders. Uh, a lot of the fight we seem to be having now is over exactly how we will improve our border security. It'll all work out. What we need is we need a strong border. We have criminals coming in. We have human traffickers coming in. We have drugs pouring in. We have things happening that you don't want to even know about. And it's been that way for decades, and we can't have it anymore. And now, Stacey Washington. Welcome into the program. We are just so glad to be here with you today. We have a jam-packed program. As always, we are going to be speaking with some guests and doing some really fun things. But we are also going to be looking at um, one of the most important ministries that we partner here with, uh, partner with here at AFR, American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. It's Mission Preborn. And so I want you to just, before we even get going, listen up. Let's pay attention. Let's get this, uh, let's get this cranking for today. We are talking about preborn ministry, where we have just about a million babies a year still being aborted in this country. Now, the good news is the pro-life movement has really come a long way in reducing those numbers, but we still have so much further to go. And we're talking about 42 million babies a year aborted worldwide, 42 million. But here in this country, around a million, it's 958,000 per the latest numbers. That's down from over 1.2 million and the high was like 1.5 million back in the 90s. And so what is Preborn? Preborn is a ministry that works with hundreds of Christian pregnancy centers across the country to provide life-saving services such as ultrasound. Now, what this does is it gives these moms-to-be the ability to see what exactly is going on inside their tummy. And this can't be overestimated how important that it, this is, what it does for women, how it helps shape their perspective going forward, because everyone else in their life is telling them it's a lump of cells. It's just, it's nothing. Just get rid of it. It's inconvenient. And this changes that. The ultrasound allows the mom to hear the baby's heartbeat and see the formed baby to see what's going on in there. The centers provide mothers who choose life, maternity and baby clothes, diapers, car seats, counseling, and so much more. And they do this free of charge. It's a ministry. It's a, it's a love offering. And it's helpful. And it changes lives. Preborn centers have counseled 340,000 women considering abortion. 73,600 babies have been saved. That's 73,600 babies have been saved. And 40,000 women have heard the gospel. And out of them, more than 28,000 have surrendered their lives to Christ. And if there's anything that we're trying to do here, it's that. That's what we're here for. Yes, we have the news and the politics and the commentary. And we have the culture and we, we laugh and we enjoy ourselves here. And you're at home at American Family Radio. This is the 
tip of the spear of what we're trying to do, what we aim to be doing and found doing when God returns for us. The church, we're to be ready. We're to have our, our candles all ready to go, our, our, our lamps full of oil. We're supposed to be ready. And this is one way that we do that. So we're asking you for a gift of $28. That provides one woman seeking an abortion a free ultrasound, and it gives the mom the opportunity to choose life for her baby. $140 provides five free ultrasounds. This will reach five women with a message of life. And I know that we have quite a few people in our audience who that is not a big deal for them to do $140 to provide those ultrasounds. Our goal this go-round is to save 2,000 babies. 100% of your donation goes directly to the pregnancy centers that provide the ultrasound. So there's no overhead here. There's nothing to worry about. Like some of these foundations where you got only 15% of what's being donated going to the cause they told you to give for, not so here. 100% of it goes to these ultrasounds. Here's what you can do. I need you to call 877-616-2396. That's 877-616-2396. Or go to AFR.net and donate there. You know me. I'm all about the online donations, and I love to be able to click through. Less than five clicks, I want to be done and on my way to my next thing that I want to do online. And that's how it is here. You are not going to be burdened with a lot of drama. You're going to get through and be able to donate any amount you choose. $28 is what we're asking for. And for those who are willing to go the extra mile, $140 to get five ultrasounds done and save five babies and speak the gospel to five women. So... 877-616-2396 or AFR.net. Now, here's who's on the program today. We are, (laughs) I love it when we have uh, our fun and fantastic guests. And today is no different. We're going to be speaking with Nicholas Grossman. It's been a bit since he's been on the show. And, you know, he and I always have fantastic conversations about the Middle East. And this is no different because we have a real argument going on between the left and the right, if you will, um, or I should say, most people who just believe we should be at war everywhere, and Donald Trump, who ran on decreasing the number of troops that we have stationed abroad in these endless wars that are not authorized by Congress, by the way. So Nicholas is going to come on and update us on the situation in the Middle East, and we're going to be able to chat with him about that. And we are also going to be talking about Senator Lindsey Graham. Now, he had a moment on uh, one of the Sunday shows, and he was talking about negotiating with the Democrats. And then he kind of let slip, and I don't know if it was intentional, like it's a warning shot across the bow, or if it was more of a, this is what's going on, and he's sharing it, and he didn't realize how much he actually shared. But suffice it to say, Lindsey Graham has exposed that there's a bit of a, it's it's not a bit, it's a war going on with the Republicans over whether or not we should be drawing down in the Middle East. In conjunction with that, because, you know, a lot of constituents of both parties make money off of us being at war in the Middle East continually. And when we start talking about pulling out, they look at their bottom line and realize they're going to make less money. And so they start pressuring their counterparts, senators and people in the House that they basically own. Lindsey Graham should have one of those racing car shirts that shows everyone who donates to him so that we would know who really owns him instead of the constituents that he serves. And he's actually basically thrown out this, it's an idea, but I think it's the truth, that in exchange for not drawing down troops, the Senate will protect the president from impeachment because you know the House is going to bring it. The Democrats are not going to be able to resist the urge to try to impeach President Trump, even though I hope they know I'm going to be actually praying because the the president is there in the Bible, and we're going to talk about that here in just one second, where 
David prayed for his enemies to be vanquished. He prayed for the Lord to crush his enemies under his feet. That's what we got to be praying for, that we would have justice, that justice would prevail and that the truth would win out and that wrongdoers would be punished, which means almost any person you think about that they're, they're putting up as their potential front runners, they all have skeletons hanging in the closet. Some of them, their skeletons are out of the closet riding around with them in their, in their town cars. If impeachment is the order of the day, then so be it. They can impeach President Trump. They can try it. And then we can impeach their president. They'll, be, they'll win again, unfortunately. And then it will be their turn. So we'll get into that audio and I'll let you hear. Uh, it, it's kind of stunning that Lindsey Graham would even let fly on national television that perhaps they're trading the shutdown support for protection from impeachment when he should be saying they're supporting the president because the wall is needed and because there's no other way around this. If we don't have a physical barrier, we don't have a country because these people want to get in here. They want a piece of that fantastic Trump economy that the Democrats are so busy trying to act as if it doesn't exist. So we'll get to that in just a minute. Right now, I want to go to our daily confession. It's Psalm 52. And in Psalm 52, to set the table here, you've got David on the run from Saul. This is in the Old Testament. And you can find the kind of some background reading on this in 1 Samuel 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24. And what, what's happening is David is, is upright in the sight of his king and in the sight of God. He's gone out and anytime Saul needed military might, David was at the head of that military might commanding the Israeli troops and they would, the mighty men of valor would go out and they would vanquish every enemy. And they would kill everyone. I mean, they were just unmatched in their military superiority against their enemies. Now, they weren't going around performing just random conquests. They would go out and David would say, God, do you want me to go down this hill and strike these people with the, with, you know, with the edge of my sword? And God would say yes, and then he would. He would say, you know, God, should I go and you know, follow these marauders to take back what they've stolen from us? God would say yes, and he would go and he would take back everything that was stolen from them. Over and over again, David, at the behest of Saul, often would go and vanquish the Philistines specifically and anyone else who came against them. And in the midst of all of that, anytime David wasn't fighting and risking his life, Saul had a spear out and was trying to pin him to a wall. Saul knew that David was the heir apparent to the throne, not any of Saul's children, not his offspring, but David, the son of Jesse. And he knew that David had favor with the Lord because of his un, you know, military record, zero losses. So he would try to kill him. Well, while David was on the run, he took refuge with one of the priests. And that priest gave him showbread, which was the holy bread. And that's a whole nother, like we could do a whole segment on that. But he, David was bold in his assurance that he, was, that he had favor with God and that God would care for him. He also gave him, this priest gave David this sword, the same sword that was Goliath's sword, the Goliath, the one that David killed with the, the smooth, small stone when he was a boy. So he gives him this sword because David's got nothing to defend himself with. And David lied in order to, he, he lied to the priest and said, I'm here on behalf of Saul instead of saying I'm running from Saul. And so the priest gives him this stuff and he goes on. And so you got Dag or Doug or however his name is pronounced. And he's an Edomite. And he goes and tells Saul, look, it's uh, these priests who, you know, um, the house of Ahimelech, they're the ones who have saved 
David. They're the ones who have hidden him away from you and given him bread and given him Goliath's sword. And they're, 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 they're allowing him to, to evade you. And so at first, King Saul says, you know what? You're going to, you, you my, my guards, I want you to go put every priest and every member of their house, even their women and children and animals to death because they did this and, and they did it to spite me. I'm not sure. It doesn't really say whether or not they explained or if Doug explained that um, the priests were told by David that he was on business on behalf of Saul and that he was in a hurry. Um, But regardless, Saul had no qualms about ordering his guards to kill priests. Now, the priests, they're, they're innocent here, but they did help David, a man after God's own heart. And you've got the guards who are like, nope, we ain't slaying any, no, not for you. We're not slaying priests for you. So Doug goes out and does it. This Edomite man goes and kills all, uh, all 85 of the priests, all their family, everybody just burns everything to the ground. And so when David hears about this in Psalm 52, he writes, why do you boast in evil? Almighty man, the goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying, here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. So he is extraordinarily saddened that his actions led to the death of these 85 priests. And he doesn't go to God and complain or why did you allow this to happen? He just goes to God and and he starts off by castigating and chastising Doug, but he's talking to God. So he's not gossiping. He's not complaining. He's not backbiting. He's actually talking to his father and he's pouring out his heart about the wickedness and evil that he's just seen done. But he knows that God is the deliverer and God will ultimately control and win out in every situation and that he's ordering everything for David's good. And even though he made a mistake in lying to the priests, He knows God will make all things right. We should know that too. Let's send our complaints to the Almighty and allow Him to make all things right. When we get back, we're going to have Nicholas Grossman. Stay right there. This month marks 46 years of Roe v. Wade. The Ministry of Preborn is seeking heroes who will partner with them to give the gift of life to babies in crisis. How? by providing free ultrasounds. When an abortion-minded mother sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life. And I got to hear and see my baby for the first time. Hearing the heartbeat made me cry. And it was certain that I was going to keep my baby forever. Would you join Urban Family Talk and the Ministry of Preborn in helping to give life to 2,000 babies this January? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds, and 100% of your gift goes to saving babies. To donate, dial 877-616-2396. That's 877-616-2396. Or visit AFR.net. 
Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. Do you remember when you were in high school, some of the cliques? <laughs> I remember there was a group in our high school who didn't like the kids who did well. They were suspicious that they got more breaks than the, the others. It, it's really hard to believe, but it's true. Some people will not like you because you have more recognition or you've accomplished more things or your life is different than theirs or because your life and witness are disturbing their agenda. We tend to think the favor of God means there's no hassles and that we can just serve God in this sort of ideal, protected cocoon where we won't feel any heat or pressure. As I read my Bible, that's not necessarily true. Sometimes the favor of God brings opposition. In Acts chapter 4, the church of Jesus Christ is experiencing explosive growth. People are coming to Christ by the thousands. However, it's really causing a little bit of a stir. They're upsetting the religious establishment. The priests and the Sadducees are saying, hey, look, we're, we're losing our power base. These people are more popular than we are. So they decide to come after them. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. They're being blessed, and yet bad things happened to them. God was favoring them, and yet the religious leaders were rejecting them. So you see that we cannot look to the response of people as the barometer for determining the favor and blessing of God. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. Keep your eyes on Jesus and keep your heart pure. Pursue faithfulness, and no matter what others say or even do, you'll experience the favor of God. That much is guaranteed. More information about the ministry of Crawford Loritz can be found online at livingalegacy.org. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome to the program. You can find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com, UrbanFamilyTalk.com, and American Family Radio's website is AFR.net. And we have fantastic content for you on all of those channels. So hit the subscribe button and like us on Facebook. We're still there. Uh, if you're not getting notifications or you're not aware that our page is still up, well, shame on Facebook, but you can fix that by clicking Get Notifications. Um, that does help, but it doesn't guarantee anything. So my recommendation is stay subscribed to our individual websites because that is where we do not have to worry about algorithms keeping you from seeing our content. So thank you for being with us today. Uh, welcome back from the weekend. I don't know if about you. I'm energized. I'm ready to rumble. And because of that, I'm really excited about speaking to our frequent guest. We haven't chatted with him in a little bit. Nicholas Grossman. He's a professor of international relations at the University of Illinois. Nicholas, thank you for joining us today, sir. Hi, Stacey. Thanks for having me. Hi. Um, it's good to talk to you at this particular time because part of, aside from the illegal immigration and the, the border wall fight with the shutdown, the other big issue that everyone is kind of discussing is the president's campaign promise to draw troops down in the Middle East and what that means for the situation in Syria, our allies, the Kurds, et cetera, et cetera. What can you tell us to help us understand what's going on here? Well, at the moment, it's pretty up in the air. So just as of a few days ago, the president had instructed the military to begin withdrawing, to pull all of what are about 2,000 American troops that were in Syria out of the country. And this had triggered some debate. There were some people that were very pleased with it, some that disagreed with it strongly. The 
Secretary of Defense resigned over it. Um, and then, uh, as of today, now uh, John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, has been going to allies in the region and uh, assuring them that the United States is withdrawing based on certain conditions, in particular uh, the defeat of ISIS and the protection of the Kurds that the U.S. has been working with to fight against ISIS. And the president now seems to be leaning in that direction also. So it looks like maybe the U.S. isn't actually withdrawing, but it is still up in the air. Still not totally certain. Okay. Now here come the questions. And I know you're prepared for this because you're a professor, so you're ready to bear with me here. But I'm, it's not just me. I have had a, numerous online kind of conversations with people, uh, kind of back channel, and everyone has some of the same questions. And the first one is, without a military authorization to be at war in Syria, why would anyone, Republican or Democrat, support us keeping troops there as opposed to Congress giving the authorization and kind of outlining what our strategy is and when we would be pulling out and going in that direction, especially since this is a campaign promise for Donald Trump to get out of there? So that's a fantastic question. Uh, the United States wars abroad in general, all the operations against terrorism in various countries, including uh, Yemen, Pakistan, Somalia, uh, Syria, Iraq, uh, all have been officially authorized under what's called the Authorization of Military Force, which was originally passed by Congress right after September 11. So it's pretty open-ended, but uh, it says that it's legal to go after anyone who is affiliated with the people behind it, but it's pretty much a stretch to say that current stuff going on in Syria or Iraq um, are directly affiliated with the people who are behind the September 11 attacks with al-Qaeda. While there's right. some al-Qaeda there, certainly not everybody. It's not really legal. Um, the answer to the question is, since it's not really illegal either, in many ways, Congress doesn't want the responsibility. So the president has been deciding it one way or the other uh, with Bush, Obama, and now Trump. Um, and this way, Congress can look at it and say, you know, my name's not on it. I won't, in a future campaign, if it goes bad, have to say, oh, I was the one who authorized that. I voted for it. But also... Uh, if it goes well, I won't get any credit. The president will get all the credit. So Congress has been largely punting on this for now almost two decades. You can arguably say back to the 70s. Um, and as a result, presidents have accrued more power. So really, that's a great question because the answer is it's not totally legal, but Congress doesn't seem interested in taking the risk, the personal political risk, of making it totally legal or saying it's totally illegal either. It also reflects the shift in uh, political ideology for the Democratic Party, which used to be completely opposed to wars and entanglements abroad unless we were directly impacted, like someone had actually you know, hit our troops abroad or something like that. And now we have both parties that are pro-war. And this was something that it's kind of evolved. But a lot of people call Hillary Clinton a neocon. A lot of people had problems with President Obama's use of drones. And, you know, kind of instead of interrogating people or trying to get information, he would just send drones and kill them. And, you know, if, if an American er citizen errantly was, you know, involved, which I kind of didn't care about that particular case myself, but it, the idea was that Democrats are the ones who usually oppose these kinds of things, but they're in favor of it too. And so I guess the, the, the follow-on to that, Nicholas, is what about the troops that we have over there that are dying, number one? And number two, I, I mean, what exactly does our 2,000 troops, that's not a lot of troops, out of all the troops that are there and all of the mercenaries that are there, we routinely just wipe out the Russian mercenaries, et cetera, 
What does our little involvement there of 2,000 troops really matter when so many other troops and forces from other countries are in the region as well? So I think your instinct is right that they're not able to shape the outcome. They're not able to decide it themselves or impose their will uh, on the area. What they are able to do is assist the Kurdish forces. And there are a lot of practical things that the United States can do that uh, the different local militias can't. Uh, For example, um, there are U.S. Special Operations Forces. They're in communication with U.S. aerial surveillance, so, you know, drones or even satellites to find out the location of various things to target uh, missiles specifically. And that's something that the local forces, the militias, couldn't do. So that makes them a lot stronger. Also, by the U.S. being there, it keeps everybody out. So Turkey, Russia... Syria, Iran might all have designs on the territory there, but at the moment they know that if they try to launch military operations, uh, they could easily end up killing Americans, and that would result in all sorts of diplomatic and potentially military problems for them, and so they are deterred from doing it. So by the U.S. being there, um, it helps the forces that are fighting ISIS continue to finish them off. There are few pockets of territory that ISIS still has and the group has transitioned more or less back to being like an insurgency. So they're not gone, but they're not holding territory anymore except for a few parts. So it helps fight against that, and also it uh, strengthens the local areas that have been um, allied with the United States and uh, in general have been more pluralistic than many of the other areas in the region um, and keeping that part from being conquered from any direction. Okay. All right. So I, I absolutely see the sensibility in what you've just shared. Um, but I also, I, I think it's kind of crazy just personally that we need to keep 2000 troops there just so basically it's like reputational might. We have 2000 of our people there. So a lot of people who would normally do anything they wanted, run r- roughshod over the nation or, or over the, the, the Syrian country, what's left of it, or they would take it over for themselves. They don't do it just because we have troops there. But we also have just billions of dollars going into the Middle East. And we're while we're doing that, we have our southern border where we can't get $25 billion for a wall. Now, we're spending way more than $25 billion a month in the Middle East. So for people who are more concerned about the other issue, which I know you're not here to discuss that, but the people who are more concerned about that issue would naturally look at our involvement at the middle, in the Middle East and say, we could draw down someplace, find someplace to draw down because we are too involved there. How do we, like, how do you counter that? And how do you, in essence, change my mind that it's, it's not time for us to continue to be there? Kurds notwithstanding, I understand that Turkey wants to run them over, and, and I get there's a lot going on. So I, I have two responses to it. Uh, one is I think it's kind of a false choice in that uh, there's no guarantee that, say, money from the Middle East would go towards whatever somebody wants it to go towards, True. specifically <laughs> domestically. You know, True. it could end up going towards a program that you hate or paying down debt or, you know, who knows what. So um, I would rather say if anything is a worthwhile priority, then we should prioritize it. We shouldn't make them trade off at the top. You know, there are other places we can cut spending, raise taxes, other ways, borrow money, uh, if it's important. So the big question is then, like you asked, is it important for the United States? And that one, I think it's a, there's a really good debate around. The argument for saying uh, is that we don't want to leave a power vacuum, that kind of like when Obama withdrew from Iraq, that there was a power vacuum that ISIS could step into. 
we turn back the clock a little more when the U.S. helped the Afghans throw the Soviet Union out of Afghanistan in the 80s, then uh, left it alone, and the result was uh, the Taliban and al-Qaeda on September 11th. You can even see kind of a similar thing happening in Libya, where uh, Obama and uh, other NATO countries helped remove Gaddafi, and now the country is kind of sliding into chaos where they're leaving it alone. So those places are very attractive for international terrorists. So I'd say probably the best argument is because uh, letting it fall to these types of forces could then lead to the U.S. having to go back in just in a worse position, kind of like the United States had to go back into uh, Iraq and Syria, or back into Iraq in particular, uh, to fight ISIS starting in 2014. Um, The counter-argument is that the U.S. can't really, with 2,000 troops, accomplish all that much that the local forces there, uh, and that includes, say, Iran, uh, are there permanently. The United States, everybody knows, will leave at some point. Uh, In that case, kind of like you can see in what is now 18 years of war in Afghanistan, that uh, just continuing to throw money, throw resources at it, isn't improving it. So if that's the case, if it's going to withdraw without success, might as well do it now. And I think really there's a good argument from both of those. I mean, I, I think you can tell I lean more towards uh, uh, keeping it there, being a counterweight to Russia and Iran to do right by the Kurds, to fight ISIS. But uh, it's not like these 2,000 could do miracles on their own. And I wouldn't want the United States to do something like, you know, send 30, 40,000 or like a peak Iraq hundred something thousand troops. Mm, okay. Okay. So I have like a billion questions off of that answer, but let's just... Uh, let's try to keep it specifically on this subject. So uh, can you tell the listeners and myself why it is that whenever we come out of some area in the Middle East, that Russia tends to exert a poor influence on there, which increases terrorism? Because the Russians don't like terrorism. They don't want terrorism in their country. So why would their presence without the presence of the United States result in more terrorism or, or an increase, you know, re-rise of, of ISIS, et cetera, et cetera? So I don't really think uh, Russia or Turkey are prioritizing ISIS. That Russia might say that, and that sounds good, but a lot of times when uh, they're talking about terrorists in Syria, they mean other people that are fighting against the government. Um, and what's really neat is you can go online and there are uh, maps for example, of where there's been military activity. And you can see where Russia's bombing, and it's all uh, in areas like Aleppo and other cities where there have been other parts of the rebellion. And they've dropped one or two bombs against ISIS, but really not much. Um, similarly, Turkey is more interested in fighting the Kurdish militias that the U.S. was working with because uh, some of those have links to people that uh, the Turkish government calls terrorists in Turkey. And... Uh, the United States, then, is in a position of trying to keep the two of them apart. But uh, Turkey does not really plan on going after ISIS either, uh, which means that it would be something, unfortunately, the downside risk is it could be something like after the U.S. withdrew from, um, from Iraq, the local forces are being oppressive towards the people living there, uh, and they decide it's worth fighting and they'll make common cause with even some awfully bad people kind of like ISIS, uh, or before that, like al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, so it's almost like we're trying to avoid a third uh, Iraqi insurgency. And well, what about people those who are groups saying like that Russia the... or Turkey probably won't keep it down themselves. 
Okay. So what about people who are saying that we're, what we're doing is we're leaving ourselves in a powder keg, which when it erupts, it's going to, then we're going to be involved and we'll be in like World War III when people start actually overrunning the, the kind of the, the piece that you've been discussing. It's kind of like it's a wartime environment, but it's kept within the bounds of reason because America is there, that that influence is not going to continue to be present. And our little 2000 troops and our, you know, reputational might isn't going to be enough to stop this, this what's coming, which is Turkey is planning on going in there and wiping out the Kurds. I think that's a really good point. That that's the question of what would it take the United States to protect the Kurds long term? You know, so if there are all these people around that are waiting to attack, uh, even if the U.S. can hold them off, how long can that go on for? Uh, and uh, I don't know the answer to that. And also, I think uh, a good point that it brings up is a big risk of what if one of those countries attacks anyway? You know, is the U.S. really going to get into a fight with Turkey, a NATO ally? Uh, over, you know, what is, in that case, right on the border of Turkey, um, that uh, even if the U.S. is fighting more with the Kurds, would it, you know, really want to go to war with an ally like that? I think probably no. Um, the unfortunate part is that no matter what happens, the U.S. is involved. That this is something I, I think each, uh, a lot of times each president comes to office, and Bush, Obama, uh, and now Trump have all gone into office saying that they want to reduce America's presence in the Middle East. And stuff happens and they get pulled in. Um, that the United States is so linked up in so many ways with uh, relationships with Israel, with Saudi Arabia, with various uh, oil companies, other business interests, uh, military interests, so many bases throughout the region, that if there anything big starts happening in the Middle East, the United States is in, whether we want to be or not. It's just a question of how would we go about preventing that, ideally, and if not, handling it as best as possible. Mm, Nicholas, kind of depressing, dude. You're not, you're not bringing me a lot of joy with this conversation because I'm, I'm one of those people who wants to see us bring a little bit of it down. Not all of it. I understand the realities, but um, as usual, no good solutions, but fantastic commentary and your analysis and information is so needed right now. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Nicholas Grossman, professor of international relations at the University of Illinois. Thank you for your time today. Happy New Year. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Talk to you again soon. Uh, We will be back with more right after this. Uh, Don't forget to go to AFR.net. We're looking for your donation of 28 or even $140 to support Mission Preborn. It's 877-616-2396 or AFR.net. A dear sister in the Lord who is a writer for the AFA Journal wrote an astonishing article about idols. In this article, she attests to the fact that if we are truly honest with ourselves, we will find things or people whom are more important in our lives than our relationship with God. Let's just say when I read this, I did my own soul searching and found a few. There are several passages in God's word where he tells us to not idolize things or people. Even the very first two commandments warns us about idolatry. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, John tells us to keep our ourselves from idols. Idolatry is sin, and it could be your career, your marriage, your car, including yourself. John Piper says it best, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. 
How do you get satisfied and excited about God? Refresh your memory of what the Savior of the world did on the cross and ask the Lord to help you make Him number one in your life. With a heart for the Urban Family, I'm today's Urban Woman, Victory McIntosh. Connect with us more at UrbanFamilyTalk.com. I was drinking and I tried to stop on my own, but I couldn't and it was a complete disaster for my family. I decided to make a change by coming to Teen Challenge. My life is transforming me right now and I have come to realize that God has a plan for me. If you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, Adult to Teen Challenge can help. There are centers across the country and you can find the one nearest you at 855-END-ADDICTION or at TeenChallengeUSA.com. This is Urban Family Talk. Abraham Hamilton III. God put us in this world at this time to be salt and light. We don't fold because of the darkness that we're facing. This is not the first time in the world's history that it's gotten dark. God has called you and I to be his ambassadors, even in this dark moment. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekdays at 5 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. Donald Trump's America. Today is day 17 of the partial government shutdown. Democrats in Congress say they won't fund the president's border wall, whether it's made of concrete or steel. The president said again Sunday he may strike out on his own to get it done. I may declare a national emergency dependent on what's going to happen over the next few days. House Democrat David Cicilline on Fox News Sunday said border security is the goal, which encompasses a lot. Comprehensive immigration reform. We need to have additional personnel. We need to use technology. So we want to secure our border and respond to these challenges, but we want to do it in a way that works. Senate Republican Susan Collins says the first order of business, though, is to reopen government. And on NBC's Meet the Press, she made a request of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. I would like to see him bring the House pass bills to the Senate floor. But there's no guarantee the president will sign them, which leaves the shutdown length up in the air. Grinnell Scott, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Yeah, it was pretty clear to me that we're never going to have a deal unless we get a wall as part of it. Uh, Dick Durbin's a reasonable guy, but he's not leading this parade. We're having to negotiate with people who want to abolish ICE, not support ICE. We're having to negotiate with people who see the Border Patrol agents gassing children rather than defending our borders as professional law enforcement officers. And we're negotiating with people who will give us one dollar for the wall, even though it's immoral, and accuse all of us who support a wall as part of border security is racist. As long as the radical left is in charge, we're never going to get anywhere. The president will compromise, but he will not capitulate. So that's where we're at. Right. That's where we're at. So did you listen to what he had to say there? Do, do, you, do you hear Lindsey Graham on there? Um, so I, I fear that the Lindsey Graham that we all met or became reacquainted with or were introduced to during the Kavanaugh hearings, that fiery individual who came out on the side of what was right because he saw someone getting railroaded, I fear that that Lindsey Graham will retreat back into the swamp and or get dragged back into the swamp and he'll drown and the person who will remain is some iteration of the John McCain Lindsey Graham that we all knew as a rhino and someone who couldn't be trusted and someone who couldn't be supported. And so we all heard the interview with Nicholas Grossman. I respect him a great deal. And I understand the 
reasoning behind what he shared with us. And his article is over at Arc Digital. And I've just posted it in the comments over at the YouTube page. And I'll, I'll quickly throw that onto the Facebook page as well. You can read it. It's, it's well thought out. And it takes in, into consideration the different factors that are at play here. And this is, this is not an easy thing. It's not like anyone out there has a, an idea, a story, uh, you know, a, a plan, a group of ideas, a group of people, a council of, you know, smart folk, whatever. There's nobody out there with the secret recipe to getting America out of the Middle East. And so when you look at it that way, you say, well, then what's the happy medium? How do we how do we get out of there with our honor intact? Because the Kurds have helped us a great deal in the Middle East and to leave them when we know that Turkey is planning on literally just wiping them out. That seems a little sketchy, don't you think? But on the other hand, if we had a planned withdrawal, um, then wouldn't that be something that we could get behind? And the idea, again, the, I guess the older you get, the more you learn. Um, we're sitting here discussing on national radio, just as calm as you please, Nicholas Grossman and me, how Congress has decided over decades that it is their standing policy then rather than be held responsible for what happens in the Middle East, namely dead Americans. And, uh, you know, sometimes we feel like we have a huge grip on the, the terrorism and we're doing great. But really, it's our intelligence agencies that keep that terrorism from coming here. It's not 2000 troops in in uh, in, in Syria who are wholly responsible for a lack of terror attacks here on the homeland. Right. You know what I'm saying? So this Yes, I'm sure that plays a role. The more ISIS members they kill over there, the fewer of them come here and use our open border to get in and do terror. But we are still bringing in refugees from these countries, people who honestly hate America and they only want to come here to destroy it. And we're also bringing in lawful immigrants. And we have chain migration where the person who came in originally under the immigration probably is as right as rain and would make a fantastic American, but all their relatives won't. So we're... We have we have huge issues here. I also agree with what Nicholas Grossman said. He made a very logical, common sense point, which is when we make a comparison that one kind of funding, say funding for our troops in Syria or our involvement in Afghanistan, that if we drew that amount down, we would be able to fund, you know, something else, say a wall at our southern border. He's right that that's ludicrous because we already have the zero point point zero one one percent of the budget needed to fund our, our border wall, the $25 billion. I've already got that. I mean, that, that amount of money is already in the budget. It's, it's not like that's hard for us to find or fund. It's the idea of having a wall to stop the illegal immigration that Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats are against because they want radical population change here. They want demographic change. And once they've achieved that, if it's like a third world pit, they don't care because Nancy Pelosi has enough money she honestly has enough money. She will never experience the horrors of the things that, that regular Americans are facing because they're just surrounded by people who live here illegally and don't speak English and don't care anything about speaking English. These people are hostile. We have a, we have a little encampment of them out uh, in, here in West County. And if you go to certain places like the Walmart, you will see them there shopping 
They'll run right past you. If you're walking down the aisle of the Walmart, they'll just push right past you or they won't move out of the way when you're coming with your cart. You have to go back around the aisle and come back around. They don't speak English and they're cursing you out in Mexican, Spanish, whatever their language is, Guatemalan, who cares? They're, they're cursing you out right in the Walmart, which means, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm not in the Walmart very often anymore because I refuse to have to deal with that drama. Pick one. You want to speak English or do you want this? Do you want to check out in Spanish? Why should I have to pick anything? I'm an American. I speak English and all of my business transactions are in English. Why should I have to choose whether or not I want to do English or Spanish at Walmart? And, and this is what Americans are dealing with by and large. But it's not the people who live in Nancy Pelosi's Napa Valley neighborhood. It's not the people who dwell around her multi-million dollar estate or the, the restaurant that she owns out there or her winery, or any of the other areas. She, she doesn't have to put up with it. Even in a state like California, where one out of every four people there isn't illegal. One out of every four people. If you're walking down the street in California, one, two, three, four, that first one you picked, that's somebody who's there illegally. That's how much illegal immigration they have. No wonder they're a sanctuary state. It's like a nasty circle of doom that you can't get out of once you get in it. Like a merry-go-round that you get on, and the mean kid that hates your guts, he gets to spinning it, and you can't get off. The only way off is if you let go and then you're going to fly out and probably die and hit another piece of uh, playground equipment. Yeah, that's that's California. The merry-go-round of evil. Beautiful, beautiful, but horribly corrupted by people who honestly it's about winning and power. It's not about what makes sense or how to save lives or, or how to even just preserve the lives that are already there. So. Nancy's house is, is, is gated. It's, it's, there's a fence around it. The property is well protected. And if you look at the aerial view of it, you just think to yourself, um, like, I know that it's, it's, I, I say it's unreal, but I'm saying that because it's, it's not like I don't know people who have mega houses. I'm, you know, our house is not small. It's not like I don't know people who live in homes where you walk in and it's, it's so clean and so unrealistically everything's so new and big and expensive you're just walking around it's like walking through a museum but it's where people live their kids are running around playing they got dogs all over the place but this is how nancy pelosi lives and so once you get into that environment and you're not interacting with anyone normal you're not interacting with anyone who has three bedrooms and one and a half baths and 1500 square feet or anyone who they literally they're budgeting down to the penny and they have these goals and aspirations and honestly having an illegal immigrant force them out of a job or force their spouse out of a job means now nothing works in their life because they need every penny that comes in from both, both parties to make it work. She doesn't have people like that in her life other than probably the illegal immigrants who work the vineyard where she, and there are so many layers of people between her and that. It's not even funny. I mean, we know this. Yes. She may know some illegal immigrants who work for her in, in her staff that clean her home. But again, those illegal immigrants are being paid well by Nancy, well enough that they're living in, you know, the, the areas of the illegal immigrant population where they're living what's considered for them. It's it's upper class life. They're coming from countries where a dollar a day is just outrageous money. So we don't even know from that kind of poverty and degradation here in this country because our poor citizens are paid for and taken care of lock, stock and barrel from the moment they wake up in the morning to the time they go to bed at night by us. So let's get to the I'm, I can't let this show go by without talking about Lindsey Graham trading the shutdown support for protection from impeachment for the president. I honestly cannot believe that Donald Trump, the you know, he wrote a book about negotiation and all of that is in this position. But 
Lindsey Graham kind of tells on himself. And I first want to have him, it's this bit of audio he discusses, um, it's about 42 seconds of him discussing the daily influx of minors and the costs that are associated with that. So he has a tight understanding of what is at stake here and how many people are being harmed, not just Americans, but illegal immigrants themselves and the children who are being trafficked into this country. They're all being harmed in horrific ways. And Lindsey Graham wants to put a stop to it. But then we're going to talk about the tradeoff he's proposing. It's, uh, it's number six. Why would you negotiate with somebody who calls you a racist if you want a wall, who gives you a dollar for a wall when the Democratic Party supported $25 billion in the past? We're not going to negotiate with people who see the world this way. We'll negotiate with Dick Durbin, but I'm not going to negotiate with somebody who calls the Border Patrol agents a bunch of Nazis when they're trying to defend the border against a mob. These caravans have changed everything. The reason you need $5 billion now and not $1.6 is the border is deteriorating in terms of security. We've got 11,000 unaccompanied minors coming mm -hmm. from Central America, and it costs $750 a day to house these minors, and only God knows what they go through to get here. So he sounds pretty ticked off about that, right? But all of the senators, all of them, one thing that they learn when they get there, if they don't already know it, is that you're never giving anything to anyone who's asking you for something without trading something for it. All of it's horse trading. And so what Senator Graham doesn't want is for the president to remove one troop from any place in the Middle East. He's entrenched there. Senator Graham is what some people like to call a neocon. I think a more accurate description is to say that he likes our involvement in the Middle East. He is of the worldview that any troops that we have there are preventing terrorism from coming here. It's not all nasty, mean, ugly motives behind it. I'm not saying he doesn't have a good kind of thought process behind it. You heard Professor Grossman. There's an argument to be made for being there. But what I am saying is that no true dyed-in-the-wool true believer type of a person who understands what's at stake here with the southern border, our national sovereignty, and, and just having a country. Like, do you have like having a country? That's the question we should be asking people at this point. Because if you like having a country that's run like a actual, you know, first world type place instead of a third world 10-pot dictatorship, then you should be against illegal immigration. If you don't care about having a country and you living in a place that looks like America but operates like Guatemala, that's not an issue for you, then of course you're going to be for illegal immigration. But that shouldn't be something we should worry about with elected officials like Senator Graham. But it is. So here's, here's I mean, I, I, honestly, I can't believe this. So you've got Senator Graham admitting that, you know, the shutdown hanging tough with it is pretty much conditioned upon President Trump not doing what he announced a week or so ago or whenever it was that Mattis, you know, Mattis resigned, his chief of staff has now resigned. People are all upset about us removing troops from Syria. I mean, they're really upset. Mattis wouldn't resign over our southern border being wide open. Now, would he? Who's going to resign because the border's still wide open and we're not getting anything done down there? Nobody, because they don't care about it. They don't care about it the way we do. And that's to me, that's hard to say it, it is. It represents my my statement just then represents a very sad and stark reality that really it's all of us American people. We're actually standing against our elected officials as well as the invasion at the southern border. I, I can't begin to express to you how much that depresses me, how much that hurts my physical heart 
to understand that we keep electing and sending to Washington, D.C., these individuals who actually don't care about maintaining America as not just an idea or a concept or an experiment, but an actual place with borders. It's just you and me, the regular folks, the elected officials don't seem to have a grip on it. So what he wants, what Lindsey Graham wants, is to stay in the Middle East. Now, you would need 20 GOP turncoats in the Senate, and you'd need a, a whole gaggle of them in the House to first advance a bill that would uh, you know, end the shutdown with no border wall funding and then pass the House and then head on over to the Senate and in and, and the Senate then clear that hurdle of 60. And then, of course, you'd still have to get to the president's desk and then he wouldn't sign it, and then you would have to override that veto. So the, the bar is high. But when you tie it to keeping troops in the Middle East, then the purse strings start tugging. Those marionette dolls are going to start jigging out. They're going to start twerking for their lives because it's not really about the Middle East per se. It's about the interests in the Middle East that fund their campaigns, that pay for their second and third home, the ones that keep them in the halls of power, dressed in the $5,000 outfits, driving the $90,000 cars driven by someone else, the staffs of 20 and 30 people, all of that. The engine that keeps that going wants to see us stay in the Middle East with the same amount of fervor that it wants to see the border and the South remain wide open so illegal immigrants can pour in. Because that cheap foreign labor doesn't ask for breaks. It doesn't need benefits. It's not going to talk back. That cheap immigrant labor comes here and all it wants is just the bare minimum, anything above a dollar a day, and they're good to go. Because anything that they don't get paid while they're working is covered by us, the taxpayers. If we're not on our knees about this issue, we're just talking, and there's no way I'm just talking. we got to continue to pray about this, that God's will would win out, and that we would see justice and truth and a return to order, not just in the Middle East where it concerns us, but at the southern border. If you're leaving us now, God bless you. Good evening from the heartland. We'll be back after onenewsnow.com. <laughs>